is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Richard Dolan is my guest and my friend, and we'll be talking about his most recent book, Alien Agendas. I feel like this guy does not need any introduction, and anyone, even with an outsider's view of UFO studies, will instantly recognize his name, his voice, and his work. But for anyone who hasn't heard of him, I will list off some of his books. Rich is known mostly for his two-volume books, UFOs and the National Security State, and these are both big, fat books. He is also known for another big, fat book, UFOs and the 21st Century Mind. And he also wrote a book called A.D. After Disclosure, and this was written with his co-author, Bryce Zabel. He's had a few shorter books, and one of these shorter books is Alien Agendas. And, um, and I had a long list of questions before this interview, and I got to ask almost none of them. This felt much more like a conversation with a life of its own rather than a formal interview between an author and a radio host. Rich's contact info can be found in the show notes. This conversation was recorded Wednesday, April 14th, 2021. Please enjoy. Rich, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Hi, Mike. It's definitely a pleasure to, to be here with you. Uh, we've known each other a long time, and I'm, I have had you on my program, and I'm very happy to, to be here on yours. And yes, and I, you were on my program a handful of times back when it was The Hidden Experience. Excuse oh, me. yeah. That's back right. when, yeah, when Going it, back. Yeah, and that, that's some of those are it's going back 12 plus years now. Yeah. You have a new book out. It's titled Alien Agendas. The subtitle is A Speculative Analysis of Those Visiting Earth. Yes. Now, by your standards, that's kind of a thin book, right? It is indeed. And um, I probably could have spent another six to eight months and working on it and made it more than – it's about 250 pages. So it's not a slender, slender book, but it's definitely much less than uh, – the five, the four to five to six hundred page books that I've often done. And what was the genesis of this book? Earlier in 2020, really at the beginning of the COVID outbreak, when the, essentially the world was shutting down, I had um, decided I was going to do an online one-day conference event. And so I developed a lecture uh, out of which this book really came. And the, the lecture was, um, I think I call it the alien agendas at that time. And I did another lecture, which actually dovetails into this book entitled the fourth stage of humanity. Um, and essentially they were, these were just ideas that I, I had been working through for some time before that. And I guess I just decided the time was right for me to, to move ahead into this. So I delivered those lectures in June of 2020 and on the basis of those, I uh, kind of leaped into writing a book. My original goal was that I was simply going to do a sh much shorter booklet of this theme. And it, as I kept going through my original notes, I just had more and more to add. And the next thing I knew, it actually was the size of a, of a you know, some, somewhat slender book. But it was originally intended to be much shorter than, than it is even here. 
yeah, things things tend to have a life of their own. Mm -hmm. Did this feel like new ground for you, this book? Yes, I would say so. It's not that I had never speculated uh, privately or even sometimes publicly on what I thought was behind the UFO phenomenon. I mean, I often have done that. In my formal written works, though, I would say I generally have been a lot more cautious. I think people kind of recognize that about me. So I wrote two volumes of history called UFOs in the National Security State. And there's a bit of speculation in those books as well, especially the second volume. But by and large, it's a factual narrative that walks the reader through the history. And I, I try to have a minimum of speculating or editorializing on what I thought you know, the intelligences behind the phenomenon were, but I was never afraid of talking about it. Uh, similarly, when I co-authored AD After Disclosure, we we got into um, a lot of the issues that, you know, were very likely behind the phenomenon, the intelligences. And then when I wrote UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, I spent uh, several chapters of that book dealing with the whole phenomenon of abduction and contact and certainly had a lot of thoughts that I put down on what I thought these beings were. So it is something I've I've done in the past, but here this is the focus of the book. And I went farther, farther, further, I went further into this, in that I I tried to do something that I hadn't really seen done very many times. Which is to let's, you know, act as though let's say I'm a counterintelligence person and I'm trying to do an analysis of who these these beings are based on the data that is available to me that I consider to be persuasive. And the only other person who really did that, in, in my opinion, like who really overtly tried to do that was David Jacobs. And you, you get that in all of David's books. I mean, even back to the beginning of A Secret Life uh, back in 1993, I think he wrote that. And then The Threat and then Walking Among Us. Like in that case, David was actively trying to get inside the head of these other beings and was actively trying to like grasp their agenda. You know, and one can agree with that or they can disagree, but the fact is that's what he was trying to do. And I haven't really seen that being attempted many times. You do get experiencers talking about their experience and and inferring the nature of these beings based on their experience. But I'm actually not aware of many other significant attempts to uh, correlate all of the data or as much of the data as they could and then to try to extrapolate out as to what we were probably dealing with. And that's exactly what I tried to do in this book. Okay, very good. Let's address that in a little bit. But I want to bring up something that that came out in the New York Times just a couple days ago. And this surprised me because I've been following the New York Times mm. uh, as far as the way they're presenting the information. There's been a handful of articles, uh, including one before, I think this went back to 2016, where Cheryl Costa was interviewed about her book, which was just a collection of um, charts and graphs about yep. um, mm -hmm. UFOs. I have a copy of it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and that was covered by um, Ralph Blumenthal in a very, very dry, thoughtful way. And I, to me, that was almost the first of the series where instead of the, the one with the, the Tic Tac uh, event that took place off the coast oh, of yes, right. California, so that 
that interview with Cheryl Costa came almost a year earlier. But just a couple of days ago, there was an article, and I'm going to read the photo caption under the initial photo. There's a woman standing by a lake, and it says, Virginia Cookie Stringfellow says Memorial Park at Bear Creek Harbor in Ontario, New York, is one of the places she was taken by alien beings. She does not use the term abducted because she went willingly. And then the opening line of the article says, In the years since she says extraterrestrial beings took her from her suburban yard outside of Rochester, New York, Mm -hmm. Virginia Stringfellow has kept her story mostly within a close-knit community of people who say they have also encountered UFOs. That's right. Is this the first time abduction is like has been so overtly mentioned in a, the New York Times? Yeah, I think it could be. It's funny. I've, I've known Cookie for many, many years. We, uh, we, the two of us have run the Rochester UFO meetup since uh, 2008, I believe, is when we started it. And I'm not familiar with her, so I'm assuming she's an experiencer and she's open about it? Yes, yeah, yeah. She is. I mean, she doesn't actually, she has mentioned her experience and she has talked about being an experiencer but even in our group she uh, hasn't really talked too many times explicitly about it i would have to say but yes we've all known that she's an experiencer so so here you have the new york times talking about abduction for the first time as i as far as i know i think you may be right I know it was mentioned in Bud Hopkins' um, obituary. With it, it was a very straight article that it is a yeah, it's a non-committal kind of a thing here. Well, Ralph Blumenthal, I think you know, the people who follow him at all, they realize he's he's one of us. He's a genuine ally for people in the UFO field. He genuinely cares. He's always had to be careful in terms of. Um, how he portrays this publicly because he's writing for the New York Times, which is the voice of the establishment. But he's been very sympathetic for a long time. So I'm glad he did that. I agree. I agree. This wasn't his article, this this article here. I can't remember the author's name. I could check the byline, but it wasn't Ralph Blumenthal, but it was the New York Times. So Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to use this next question in a way to get what's very much at the core of your of your book in a way or or one of the threads in your book let's say mm -hmm. you were involved in a documentary titled extraordinary the seeding and this i think chase kletsky was the associate producer yeah she was one of the key producers uh the actually the true key producer i just want to give credit where it's due uh, chase was involved in and uh, absolutely uh, a woman named Lori wagner oh who i know Lori. yeah she's an absolutely a++ individuals, wonderful human being. So she and uh, there were a couple of other gentlemen involved as well, but they were the ones who really put this together. But Chase was part of it, yes. So the, the subject of this, the subject matter is this documentary addresses the overwhelming reports of hybridization within mm -hmm. the UFO contact experience. And your book also addresses the ever-present reports of this hybridization program that that mm -hmm. that is all over the UFO reporting, right. or let me say the UFO abduction reports. That's right. And what's interesting about that is, yeah, I thought this the um, extraordinary the seating did a nice job in bringing out a number of people who were previously just totally unknown to I think most of the folks in the UFO community and researchers. So uh, they had interesting stories. Uh, I would say some were 
incredibly compelling and to my view somewhere maybe a little bit less incredibly compelling but overall i think it was very nicely done and i i'm glad i was part of that but the interesting thing about hybridization is that you get this very consistent thread among all abduction researchers no matter what how they interpret the alien presence so from someone like Dave Jacobs, who, of course, has always emphasized how dangerous this is for the survival of humanity. But you also get it from people like Barbara Lamb and Yvonne Smith, but particularly Barbara, who I know Barbara very well and, and adore her. Her perspective, however, is just opposite that of Jacobs and and where she – I don't think she's tries to be judgmental one way or the other, but I think often she has a very positive view in, in some cases of the hybridization process. Uh, someone like Yvonne Smith, I think, is a bit more on the fence. I don't think she really makes an open uh, statement one way or the other. But my point is that you find hybridization accounts pretty much everywhere. Anytime you have a researcher who goes into abduction phenomena, they they come across this again and again. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. It's, and I've talked to it. I actually ta asked Barbara, I, I'm good friends with Barbara, I haven't seen her in years, um, mm -hmm. and I remember asking her, like, is it 100% of the women who talk about the this hybridization experience? And she said, no, no, no. But it was, but she implied that it was very close. I don't think she had never, she had never really crunched the numbers, per se. Right. No, and, it has to be a lot, it has to be yeah, very high. Yeah. I'm just rereading her book right now, one of her books, um, uh, 25 Encounters, or 25 abduction encounters or something like that and uh, i'm nearly done with it again i read it years ago and I'm, and there's a revised edition oh that's nadine Leach was the co-author on that i think or? yes yes that's okay. right. yeah yeah nadine is wonderful and nadine is mm -hmm. is a remarkably calm and level-headed voice for these experiences yeah, and her she's a good writer yeah yeah and she wrote her own books i think she has two books well excuse me she she wrote her own book and then updated it recently so about her experiences. Mm -hmm. um, hey, let's take our very first break and then we'll be right back. So for free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen and I am with my guest, Richard Dolan, and we are talking about his recent book, Alien Agendas. Now there's a contentious aspect of UFO abduction research and that would be hypnosis used mm -hmm. as a tool in, in retrieving these memories. Um, I, I certainly have my own opinions, and I'm sort of on the fence in many ways, but how do you feel about hypnosis as a tool? I know a lot of people have very strong opinions on this. It's a good question. And uh, I, I both support it and I'm wary of it at the same time. So what, I've, what I have seen without any question is that hypnosis can absolutely enable accurate recall of of many things and in fact when you really think you know about what hypnosis is it makes perfect sense that it would do this i mean really most of hypnosis is simply putting the uh, subject into a very relaxed focused state of attention and that's that's really like 90 percent of it it seems to me so you're eliminating distractions you're helping this individual to Relax, you're walking them back to the, the point in time that you want to, to explore. And often they can remember things that they had thought they'd forgotten. That actually does happen. 
And and the reason is not that hard to understand why, because we go through our lives just with our brains are like ping pong balls bouncing off of you know the walls frequently. We've just had so many distractions, so many things impinging on our our thought processes and our consciousness that we don't allow ourselves to remember things well. But those memories, I don't know if they always are there, but they often are there. And if we are able to relax sufficiently with the with the proper guidance, we often can pull things out. And having said that, um, I I have to just give my own opinion that, that I have read so many transcripts and accounts of hypnotic regression, and quite a few of them have struck me as not credible. I'll just say this very honestly, and um, it's I, I can't measure this. I can't know for sure, but I do think that confabulation within hypnotic regression is a definite danger. It's a definite danger, and, and it doesn't mean that someone's trying to be dishonest. Obviously not. However, uh, I'm of the of the opinion that a lot of the things that we're encountering. I don't know what percentage, but that a certain number of the things that people think that they remember from hypnotic regression are very possibly not actual memories, that they're confabulation. And I, I don't know how to distinguish all the time, like to say that that's, that seems legit, that doesn't seem realistic, but I'm just giving my own personal sense of it. I don't think all hypnotic regressions are equal. And and I'm very wary of it myself. And and I've been through hypnotic regression and I've mm-hmm. had remarkable things emerge. And I'm and I'm I question it. I question these things that have emerged that I've seen and said out loud. You know, like I've been things Well for perfect example. And and I have to be really careful how I put this because I don't I don't want people to think that I dismiss um, this particular form of memory, but I'm just going to mention the experience of ultra vivid dreams. And I'm thinking of it because I was just reacquainting myself with this in Barbara's book that we were just mentioning, where a number of the people that she regresses don't really have, they don't have missing time and they don't, they don't have physical evidence of any sort, but they had ultra vivid dreams. And she would often just start from the assumption that those vivid dreams are indeed evidence of uh, an encounter. And I guess I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. You know, I think that's, um, and I'm not saying, I'm not even accusing Barbara of saying, oh yes, well, I believe them all because her attitude as a psychotherapist is first of all, for the health of her client. And secondarily, I, I have to say as a researcher of UFOs and that's proper, and so her goal is to just have them flesh out whatever that dream was. But I think – and she's not the only one where this has happened. I just think that when you have a very vivid dream, what's happening there? But one of the things that's happening is that your 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 mind is creating a reality in that dream. And, you know, the question is, does that – what does that reflect? Does that reflect your own – imagination or is it is it definitely a reference to a genuine thing that happened and i don't think anyone's able to say for certain that it's the latter they might think that they may suspect that and it could be true but we're just getting into some really dicey territory and then when we try to extrapolate out of what seems to be a dream how how do we actually know that 
we don't have within us at a, at a subconscious level a very, very amazing ability to piece together our own reality. So I just it's I'm I'm uncomfortable with like I would never just say we must accept all hypnotic regression as as probably true. I think um, I'm at a point right now where I'm not really settled, to be honest with you, in where I stand on this. I believe it. I think that there's definite cause and an absolutely necessary element to having it because there are times when there's no other way to get that memory. But the question is, is it a sure thing? And the answer is it is not a sure thing. And that's that's the one issue I have. So <clears throat> that's where I'm at. <laughs> it's not it's not the most satisfying place to be, but I don't know what else to say. Oh, oh I'm in the middle of it. Yes, because I'm struggling with, yeah. it, with it myself. So now the issue with with uh, hypnosis as a tool in UFO contact experiences would be that the implication is that the aliens themselves, the beings themselves, have induced a form of amnesia within yes. the mind of the person. So, yes. so the the hypnosis right. is a tool to like basically unlock that that door. And I think that's exactly correct. Like I I absolutely do believe that these other beings uh, have a great ability at what I what I call memory management. You know, they they've mastered this. Our own. Uh, scientific community knows how to do this and the US military knows how to do this. They've done this for a long time. So managing human memory is absolutely totally possible. Even the ability to implant false memories that has existed for quite some time. Uh, Elizabeth Loftus comes to mind. She's a very well-known individual in this field of memory. And um, you know, I think for the last 20, 30 or more years, she's been saying this. But uh, I think when people are having these experiences, yes, like there's just too many cases where it's obvious someone has missing time, something happened, it's in connection with the UFO sighting, like, yeah. And so hyp hypnotic regression, honestly, what other tools are there that you've got that? That's what we have to use to try to unpack what's locked away. And it, and it sometimes, I think, can be used very effectively. I, I agree, and I'm, again, I'm cautious. And and what I'll also say is that um, in my research, in in the stuff that I have written about, I, you know, I almost never hear of someone's uh, hypnosis sessions. And then, if you look at the books by Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs, and then I'll even include um, uh, John Mack's book, Abduction. You mm -hmm. know, those books feel like. Like ninety five percent of it is dependent on hypnosis as a as a memory retrieval tool, and and maybe that's high, but I think that even within those uh, you know uh, those researchers, I know Bud Hopkins was very open about the fact that you know many of the reports he gets were completely a hundred percent above board remembered by the individual without the use of hypnosis. Yeah, I think you're you're probably right. Most of those those three hypnosis was very prominent. In fact, I've heard David say that it's. I think he has said this it, that only through hypnosis can you actually have an attempt at getting at the truth, because of the layers of illusion that uh, the person kind of is having, you know, as a result of their experience. And so, in fact, he he said to me like, you have to sometimes do two or three sessions at a minimum before you even think that you can start getting at the truth. So he, he says, like, you know, a conscious recollection of an event, he says, I would almost never even trust that. I'm not saying that something didn't happen, but 
that your interpretation of it or your understanding of it at a conscious level is not to be trusted. Rather, it's the hypnosis that gets at the truth. Now, that's really the first time I heard anyone put it that bluntly. You know, often when you hear someone having a conscious recollection of an event, you're like, okay, good. I, that, that makes it stronger. But with David, it's um, – so he's very, very – his attitude is like very heavy on the hypnosis part. And that's like for him the only way. I don't know what I think about that. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm understandably cautious, and and I can't tell someone else how to do their job. And he, I have been to to um, his home in Philadelphia and seen his office, and um, he offered to hypnotize me. I ended up working with Bud Hopkins initially, uh-huh. uh, and I also so I've worked with Bud Hopkins, Leo Sprinkle, Barbara Lamb, mm-hmm. Mary Rodwell. Oh my goodness! And Yvonne Smith, all of them have attempted wow. to to the biggest, the best. Yeah, I got a five. I got five all stars really in did. a way. Yeah, but 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 um, uh, David Jacobs never has never attempted to hypnotize me. I will also say that um, Barbara um, and Leo, I don't think I fully went under, and that was very very early on in my time in this, and I was terribly terribly tense about about the subject. Like I was so yeah. reticent and doubtful of my own experiences. So I, I entered those hypnosis sessions very tense and I never may, may I just, fully went under. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. One thing? Uh, when I was talking about my doubts about at least sometimes of hypnotic regression, I, I should mention though, that the reason that I, I believe that there is a tremendous value, a tremendous truth value in it is simply due to the consistency that, the people who practice this have been getting from their, the people they've regressed um, across the decades and across the world. And it's true, like by now, the whole image of gray aliens is a, kind of pretty much embedded almost everywhere you go. But especially in the early years, I don't think it was quite the same. And also, uh, one of the things is the very ultra specific nature of the abduction experience itself that that often come out and David would get them, Barbara would get them. Um, I'm sure Mary Rodwell would get them. And like, there are things that come in like specific details. And I think it's in those details that I'm very much inclined to think, okay, they're, they're getting something that's, that's real. Oh, oh, I agree that there, and then, and that's part of the reason I went to so many of them. I was genuinely curious, like what their techniques were and if different, like if a different story or a different tone, let's say, would emerge, mm-hmm. um, and it, and and from my experience, it hasn't. Like the from my experience, the you know, given the fact that uh, Leo and Barbara couldn't put mm. me under in because of my own tension, I see. It feels like the story that emerged. Uh, so what you're saying, your your story emerged organically from your genuine recollections and it was not influenced you don't think by the um people doing the regression no i don't think it was influenced they would ask me questions and i could kind of sense like i've listened very carefully to the transcripts of these sessions and i can see that they're kind of i want to be very cautious like like maybe mary was asking a question that that would have reflected her avenue of research and i and i answered it without i don't want to say falling into that with so i answered it Truthfully, almost like it's almost like when a politician gets asked a question, they sometimes don't answer the question directly. 
You do. You find. I mean, people doing regressions have different. They're, they're, they fall into different places along, let's say, the ideological spectrum of how to interpret this. That's all true. But I have I've really not seen any overt examples from any of those individuals of like really trying to lead uh, someone one way or the other. Right? Generally, I mean, whether it's David or Barbara or, as I recall, Mary, I've read some of her accounts as well. They, they seem pretty straightforward, frankly, in how they are trying to just extract the information. I would say the vast majority of what they're trying to do is simply to pull out what happened. Yeah. That's been my assessment anyway. So I'll, I'll give an example. So, and I've never worked with um, uh, David Jacobs, though I've certainly read enough of his stuff and I've spoken with him at length um, about my own experiences. So uh, the, um, but Mary will in the, in the middle of a hypnosis session, she, you know, like, um, I'll use my own experience as an example. I had a memory, like, well, excuse me, she took me to a place which I have no memory of at all. Like it would have been in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And and I was entering my home. She basically just took me to like a time that was important that I needed to re- remember. Okay. And I walked into my home and there was a gray alien standing in my kitchen. I have no waking memory of this at all. Mm. I... Though that's where I ended up in, you know, with her guidance. What do you think about that? I'm very skeptical of it. But see, here's what she said. So mm-hmm. she's, she said, um, I said, this alien's like gray alien. It's a classic gray. It's standing there in my kitchen. And and I could visualize the kitchen. It was lit just like it would be walking in at night and everything. And, right. and so she says, well, why is it there? And I'm like, I, I have no idea why it's there. And she said, ask it why it's there. And I kind of said like, um, like, why are you here? And and it said, this is the time when things will begin happening. Now is the time when things will start happening. And then looking at the timeline of my life, that very much fits into the time when, you know, my normal life began to crumble and this new life began to emerge where I was sort of confronted with all this UFO stuff. If it was me, by the way, Barbara does that tactic as well, and I I wonder about the value of that. I'm not sure what I think about that, to be honest with you. But the real question is that statement, now is the time when things are going to begin to change. Is that – so is that the alien or is that you? So I'm – I am very much at peace with not knowing, right? I can take three steps back right. and say, okay, I can't answer this. Right. It's an interesting story. It's a remarkable story. It looked like the inside of my kitchen in my mind's eye, but I, I can't fully trust it. Though I can sort of put it as a marker on like the, you know, the big grand calendar of my life. There's a deep philosophical truth to that. Yeah. I mean, it's a true thing, but the, the question is, where is it coming from? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's my my point, though. Uh, I have certainly heard David Jacobs uh, expound with some amount of venom, <laughs> saying that you know that you're not allowed to ask the aliens that those kind of questions in a hypnosis session. He thinks that's totally verboten, and and I understand why. But it's interesting that it's used by people like you know Barbara and Mary. Yeah, I yeah, I'm I'm actually a bit uncomfortable with that tactic. I've. Uh, I've talked with Barbara about this actually some years ago, and and I'm now re- rereading it in her book. Um, I don't know. I don't. I'm not seeing the logic of how that would generate valid information. But I know there are other people who do this this technique, and uh, there are things about this world 
that we do not understand. And boy, did I learn that from your book, The Messengers. There, there's a, a reality beyond our ordinary ability to understand. All right. And so I look, I recognize that. And so there could be a logic behind that type of line of questioning. It's possible. But the fact is, I don't understand it. I don't know why it would work. And I don't even know how it actually would work. And I'm not sure about the, the value of the answers that come when people do that. But it is it is a technique. I'd like to know the theory behind it, frankly. I, I, I'm understandably skeptical, too. Now, so I'll just yeah. take another example from my own life experience where I had a past life hypnotherapy session mm -hmm. and my goal my total goal was to was to deal with my history of clinical depression mm -hmm. and i was therapy straight up therapy i wanted to end solve transmute however whatever word you want to use my history of clinical depression i had about a two and a half hour three hour session with a woman in london her name is lorraine flaherty at the end of the session i felt like i, I literally sat up on her chair in her office and, and in essence said I'm cured I could feel it and I have not been depressed since then and that's seven years ago that's remarkable I hadn't been able to say that since I was 12 but wow and then now in that session which was totally therapeutic she would ask me questions like you know what does your higher self say what does your your mm -hmm. you know future self say what does your past right. self say and and so in that context hypnosis was life-saving it, it renewed a part of my life that i thought had, that i thought i'd never get back so i'm a i've become a very strong believer in the in the in let's call it the higher self uh, just on a personal basis it's something that's very important to me it's something that i know i have i know that everyone has it it's it's that part of us you can call it your soul i think it's 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 the part of you that knows everything everything about you that matters. I, I actually now firmly believe that we all have this and that I have it. And uh, the, the mission, my best mission in my life is to do my best for the rest of the time that I have here to clear the garbage blocking my conscious waking self from that higher self and you know, the mountain of just <laughs> useless uh, <laughs> emotions and activities I mean, sometimes they're necessary activities. We have day, daily things that we have to do. But, uh, yeah, things that block me from communicating with my higher self that actually knows the truth about all things that are worth knowing about. And I say this because I, I had my own uh, experience um, in trying to communicate with it and getting getting the answers, getting more than I bargained for. And I thought, wow, this is kind of an amazing thing. Was it was hypnosis involved? No. Meditation? No. no. Yeah, meditation. Okay. A lot of meditation. Meditation, and I'll just say prayer. I'll, I'll put them both in because they're different, and I used both. So I asked. I basically, I had a problem. I asked for I asked for the truth about what to do. I guess that's what I was saying. It took a few days. I, would, I took about five or six times out of the day for two days uh, to just meditate on this. So I was really focused. And... And then it came to me. It was like a series of revelations in my mind that just opened up over the course of about a half hour. One thing became known to me, then another, then another, then another. And at the end of it, I, I was kind of blown away by what had come to me 
and I'm sorry that I'm being vague here, but just you know. oh, it's personal, no problem. I, I, yeah. And and um, and then I realized, like, I thought, well, what just happened here? So I I asked for guidance. I got it. So what what is that? Like, what is that part of me? Is that my soul? Is that God? Is that? So I decided that it's it's my higher self. We can call it that, and that could very well and maybe probably is in connection with some greater divinity beyond that. I, I think it's probably right. But at the very least, even if you're a complete atheist who believes only in neurochemical combinations and and electrical impulses in your brain, it doesn't it almost doesn't matter because it's still in you. There's a part of me that knew the truth. There's a part of me that told myself the truth. I just had to ask it. I had to clear the lane. I had to get all the crap out of my waking mind, basically, right? And then when you're in that right state, it comes to you. And so it was a real insight for me. I mean, it's something that people who meditate have known for years, of course. And But I've, you know, I was really detached, I would say, in a lot of ways from that part of myself. And I'm not any longer. And I'm, I'm in a really good place because of that. Oh, that's, so this is great. So I've had similar experiences. And I would almost say that the, um, the past life hypnotherapy session played a role in in sort of clearing a bunch of static or garbage out of my out of my mind. I'm amazed at what happened with you. That's an incredible like you had severe clinical depression and and it just was gone. Well, I was I I had managed it with medication and and hard work right. for for right. 20 years, 25 years, and then and so since then I haven't had any I haven't been on any medication. I take vitamin D. That's good. Uh, that's my life preserver at this point. Fabulous. Yeah, so it's been remarkable. I, I spoke about that and I've written about that in my third book. Um, so, mm. hey, here we let's we got to do our second and final break, and then after that we can come back and and talk uninterrupted to the end of the show. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on the unseen, and I am talking with Richard Dolan, who is, in many ways, the voice of UFO research, the voice of our modern-day, present-day, right-now UFO research, and that means all the complexities that come with that. And just before the break, we talked about some of the difficulties of this kind of research and exploration, and we talked about it in the context of his most recent book, Alien Agendas. And we talked about the issues of hypnosis and confabulation and trying to find patterns within the reports and the stories that people will share, these very difficult stories. And, and I want to ask, how do you factor in these issues when writing a book that tries to address a subject that is so fraught with challenges? I mean, it sounds like you're just asking, like, how, how much do I trust the evidence that um, that I utilized? Um, unless I'm misreading what you're saying That's here. That's fair enough. That's a perfect way to say it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, although, as we were saying earlier, it is a kind of confabulation is an absolutely is a concern. But we, I also would confidently say it doesn't occur 100% of the time, and, and it may not even occur in a majority of the cases. Uh, I don't know how much it is, but I don't, I don't think it's more than half. And I mean, first of all, the, the book that I wrote, my assessment of the, the beings that are here and their agendas, uh, does rely in part on information gotten through hypnotic regression, but I would say not 
hundred percent of it. So, um, you know, the main thing I try to do is to utilize as much information that struck me as reliable or at least plausible that I could try to put together an assessment of who these other beings were. That includes hybrid beings, and I had to include that in there because the fact is we've got well more than 50 years worth of descriptions of hybrid-like beings. And even before we were you know, doing hypnotic regression, which really started in the 60s, there are earlier descriptions of beings that match what we would call hybrids. So the kinds of descriptions are there. And for that reason, I, you know, again, I call this book a speculative analysis, and both of those words are key. So I'm doing an analysis, but there is speculation here. And I'm not, I don't want anyone to think that I'm pretending that I've got the definitive answers here. I just do not. I'm, I'm trying to put out what I think looks to me as the best picture that I'm able to put together at this time. So I think that there are hybrids. What I actually think, I mean, I'll just, I'll just uh, start at the beginning. I think that there's a definite number of these beings that look exactly like you and me. They're humans. They're human beings. And um, for the longest time, I asked myself, well, for the longest time, I tried to push that out of my conclusion. You know, for years and years, I thought, well, these cases of human-looking aliens, like it doesn't make sense to me. It never made sense to me that there would be human-looking beings that would evolve on some other planet that would be perfectly well-suited for coming here on Earth and interacting with us just as human beings. Like I just thought, that's not credible, not credible. And so I didn't really know what I thought. Maybe there, you know, might be a uh, an unknown breakaway civilization type of a situation where there's a a group of human beings that became much, much more advanced and they're the ones doing this. I, I didn't really have a, a really well thought out theory. What I believe now is that it's at least plausible, in my view, that some people were probably taken many thousands of years ago and that over time essentially have been, have been living with these other alien races because they're probably quite helpful and probably quite useful. And if you are an alien race and you want to interact in one way or another with the people on this planet, it certainly is helpful to have your human-looking beings doing your job for you. They'll be much more effective. And I speculate that that's the case. And for all I know, these human beings who are essentially aliens, they maybe have climbed up the rungs of middle management and upper management, for all I know. They may be very, very powerful within their society. I have no idea. But I think that's what it is. And I think that because there are just too many examples of human-looking beings inside these craft not all of these are abduction experiences. A lot of them are very consciously remembered by individual recollections that I, I believe. And so how to explain that? I don't explain that by, by thinking that human beings evolved on some other planet. I explain that by uh, my hypothesis that humans were taken ages ago by another species and essentially that is their society. So I think that that contingent has actually monitored us for many thousands of years. And I think uh, probably at a low level, because realistically, we were not all that 
uh, <laughs> we were not all that interesting and we were not all that capable and there is not a whole lot that they could do with us, it seems to me. You know, what, what would an alien race want to do with humanity in the Middle Ages? They want to live here and live in some unheated castle. Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot that we might be able to offer them other than maybe genetic material and natural resources, which maybe that's what they did. But I do believe that, and this again is I basis on the observation that people have had of occupants of these other, of these craft and of their encounters, you start getting really unusual looking beings, alien looking beings, honestly, really only in the 20th century. Uh, prior to that, you're not really getting them. I mean, there are some odd sightings. You know, you could go through old newspapers and find mermaid sightings from the 1830s or off the coast of Scotland or Ireland. Um, there are, you know, encounters of uh, of little people, leprechauns, and things like that. I don't know what to make of those. I'm not sure what I think about those. But in terms of actual descriptions of gray aliens, you don't get anything like that until the 20th century. And I think that. In fact, that's when we started getting the arrival of a large number of beings. And the reason for that to me is quite obvious. And that is because we have gone through a massive revolution in our own society, really starting in the mid 19th century with industrial, like serious industrialization and ongoing nonstop technological revolution. So that we went from thousands and thousands of years of a society of animals pulling wooden carts Suddenly, we are now in a world of telegraph and railroad and then cars and then radio and then aircraft and, you know, nuclear weapons and computers. And now we're onto smartphones, all of that within about 150 years. That's just an unbelievable Or, or thing. less, yeah. Yeah, it's an astonishing. And so we're now about, as I've often said, we're about to leap into their world. We're looking at very strong AI. We're looking at total mastery of the genome, genetic engineering, CRISPR technology, nanotech, advanced nanotech. Um, yeah, when you put it all together, and then of course, uh, 5G complete 24-7 surveillance is just turning our whole species into a big giant anthill of surveillance and conformity. So all of that, we're, we're transforming ourselves like in the snap of a finger cosmically. And I think that is what got their attention. I think anyone with the ability to observe us realizes, okay, now humanity is in the process of doing something very significant. Are they going to be a nuisance? Are we going to have to manage them? What do we want to do about them? I think it's foolish when people say, oh, well, we're just so far behind. We could never be of interest to them. I think that's completely wrong. I think that we're on a parabolic rise right now, and in soon the dominant – intelligence of our civilization won't even be our native brain power. It's going to be some combination of organic and inorganic and algorithmic um, patterns that are going to be vastly more intelligent than our computing power in our own brains. So we're reinventing our civilization and our species. And then on that basis, it's not just incremental stuff here. We're going to be leaping into like a completely different level. And we might be ending up, believe it or not, we may end up very close to where they are. Because I don't think that all progress simply goes indefinitely. I think the, I think you go to levels. Mm -hmm. So I think that they're at a level, and I, I, I actually suspect they're at a very stable level in their society, and almost, I would say, a stagnant level. Uh, this is what I, I believe. I think I wrote this in the book, where I don't, I don't think that they're 
necessarily at the stage of innovation that we are at right now because they're done with that. I think they've uh, they've gotten to a level and we're not at that level. So our our key quality is innovation and creativity and assertiveness and even aggression because we haven't gotten to where they're at. So that's what I believe. In fact, Whitley wrote about this um, in an article, a really smart piece um, over a decade ago. And he he just offered his speculation that that these beings, visitors, as he calls them, are um, are fascinated by us because we live through space and time with each new moment as as an undiscovered territory. And it's that excitement is almost voyeuristically they have a voyeuristic interest in us because we're actually in the process of discovery. And there he speculated beyond time, as it were, and, and they're not getting anything new. And I thought that was an interesting insight. And that could be really close to the mark. That could be right. But I do believe progress doesn't occur on a linear basis. I think it, incur- it occurs at, um, you know, paradigm shifts like Thomas Kuhn 60 years ago wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions where he coined the phrase paradigm, the word paradigm. And he said science doesn't doesn't progress by increments. It, it progresses by revolution. And I think that's what we're doing. So I think that that's what's gotten the attention of anyone in our neighborhood to observe us right now. And maybe, um, I mean, if I were one of them, I would probably want to have my own people on the inside, as it were, managing the progress of this species so to make sure that it's not a threat to them. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I put in, in this book. And that would that would be, in a way, what I just talked about earlier, where like I walked into the kitchen and and when I, under hypnosis, asked this being, you know, like, what are you doing here? Its response was, now is the time. Yeah. Well, we, it's a funny thing. Like you, you know, we went through 2012 and the ascension that didn't happen and the massive changes that were supposed to happen and didn't. But I've always believed that if you fast forward the clock a hundred years and you look back on humanity of our era now, you would definitely see like, this is the transformation. We are in it right this minute. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it's it's definitely happening. We are transforming ourselves in a, at the most fundamental way imaginable. I mean, with e- Elon Musk talking about you know AI and 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 you know, I, I guess you're correct in, as far as like five G, like the ability to turn the world into like China in essence, as far as its ability to monitor us. We're one decade behind China in terms of like a social credit control system that I mean what China did is totalitarian genius I mean what China has been able to accomplish it's far beyond the dreams of Stalin or Hitler or Mao or anyone else like that what they can do now is it's the perfect tool for control so you you know you a Chinese citizen are graded on basically everything that you do and that that impacts more than your credit score That, that affects everything so it's the ultimate tool um, to create fear and compliance in a population. And they're doing it. And, you know, we you can already see it happening here in the Western world. It's already started. The, the difference is that it's not legal. It's unofficial. So it's done by corporation, big tech. So Facebook will do it. YouTube will do it. Google and so forth. Uh, it's not yet codified in law. So that's the difference. But I think we're 
we're definitely moving down that road, and I think we'll see codification of it probably in a decade, if not sooner. But um, yeah, we're we're going there for sure. It's a transformation of human society, and it's it'll be facilitated by a couple of things: a five G technology, which for the first time is going to give the ability for like smart devices of all types to to extract data from you and from your home and from your life. And in fact, it's in a weird way that data will accelerate the development of super strong AI because what's known as generative AI, that's the AI that learns the, the primary thing it needs to grow is data, like massive amounts of data. And so it will have that, um, you know, an overabundance of that. So there'll be very, very uh, intelligent algorithms that will crunch all that data that comes from your house and from my house and from everyone's house. And um, the ability to create like a kind of minority report style predictive behavioral modeling uh, will be absolutely there and they'll be able to predict your behavior better than you could or better than my behavior better than I could. So with that kind of knowledge and the complete obliteration of privacy, we're changing we're rapidly changing the human psyche. And my suspicion is that we're turning ourselves into these alien beings. I mean, that's actually what I think we're doing. Uh, you know, anytime you get a, a good a, account of by an abductee of what these other beings are like, you get a few things. A, they're telepathic. They're, so there's, there's like no, there's no privacy that they have. They are, I mean, almost like our vision of the Borg from the Star Trek show. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like a collective. Yes, there are beings among them that are the leaders that are not that don't seem to be like that but generally speaking you know when we talk about the, the three and a half foot tall gray aliens they're often described almost as drone like or as android like and they're and i think uh that's actually the kind of society that we're looking at creating in humanity uh kind of high level of control uh, for all kinds of reasons this is happening I mean, hey, there's not just there's just not going to be jobs for anyone like the, the robo apocalypse that economists talk about, you know, where the Terminator comes not to kill you, but just to take your job away. So when the jobs aren't there, what will people do? Well, they'll have to live on universal basic income. So there'll be a ward of the state. And in that kind of an environment, you lose all power. You lose all sovereignty and, and um, ability to, to decide things for yourself. And you and, you know, your psychological adaptation will, you know, you'll adapt accordingly and what you know we're seeing a culture of greater and greater surveillance and control and i think that's for the reason because it's it's a society that no longer will value genuine freedom and individuality so i think we're going to be moving very rapidly as a society we're going to become much more powerful and potent because of the technology that we will have available although as individuals we're going to lose a tremendous amount of leeway and ability to think for ourselves and to me, that sounds pretty damn close to what uh, our understanding of these alien societies is. And and I don't want to end this show on a on a real downer note. So I'm going to. Oops, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 no. I ended. This is the yeah. That's a tendency I've often. <laughs> yes, so. I, it's, I have it too. So I mean, I recognize exactly what you're saying is is an issue at hand that we're all of us have to confront. Like our our planet has to confront this. And the the message that seems to be coming from uh, the beings, you know, like the the, right. the messages that are telepathically shared by these beings. I mean, I could list them right off. Like, okay, are are we're too aggressive? We're too violent? 
well, let's say, say our technology has far surpassed our spirituality. Right, right. And then um, that we're destroying nature. Mm -hmm. And there's also a, um, uh, like a call to come back to nature and then to sort of be less materialistic. I mean, those kind of things are, are, are what I'm finding in the people that I'm talking with as far as their response to these experiences. Yeah. To me, that those sound very ideological, and I've, I've developed the suspicion that a lot of those messages are – got to be careful here. But I think a lot of them seem to come out of the individual's own ideological predisposition. And that would be me. That would be me. So that I'm, I'm latching on to exactly the list I just clicked off, right. you know, three or four mm -hmm. points there. That, that would be my own ideological worries. I mean, the question is, are these alien beings genuinely progressive, eco-friendly, new age ideologues? Because that's how they always sound. And I just, I wonder about that. And I do too. And what I'm finding is that there's a Ooh, let me let me collect my thoughts here a little bit because we're getting into thin ice without because I can say whatever I want, but I well, if I can't back it up, I don't want to piss off the wrong people. And I mean, the the thing is, like, it could be true, but then they the other message that you didn't mention, but that I did is is I think very prominent, which is that humanity is too aggressive and too violent. But but of course, you think about it. For there are mixed messages here. Because you mentioned going back to nature, and yes, they do say that. But if you're going back to nature, human beings in nature are aggressive and violent, and that is the reality. You go through human history, prehistory, hunting and gathering, human beings hunted and killed and ate animals. That is an act of violence. I don't know if they're saying don't do that or just don't fight each other, but human beings in nature are animals. Yeah, yeah. We are literally mammals. That have a great deal of aggression. In fact, the aggression is what has kept us alive. That's part of our initiative and ambition. And part of that comes out through aggression. And also 7 billion of us couldn't, you know, go walk into the woods and like live on berries and nuts. You know, we'd, we'd, it just isn't going to work at this point. No, well, the, the real problem that we have that we're facing is that we have a biological history that we, we are fools to deny. All right. On the other hand, we have created an artificial world in which those biological imperatives don't work the way that they used to. That's the problem. So we've created a complete infrastructure that is totally at odds with our natural environment. But the problem is if we were to go back truly to nature, we would dismantle our cities. What would we do? Like we have an infrastructure that is technological, which is what allows us to have this society that we have. And so there's an inherent contradiction. If we actually were to go back to nature, we would be, we wouldn't be able to have this interview. Yeah. So, so it's unclear um, what actually, if if those are the genuine messages we're getting, I would say they're screwing with us. I mean, I at least would put that out there. I mean, literally guilt tripping us as a captive population, and you know, are they living in nature? Are they acting in a form of non-aggression? I really wonder. Who's doing the cattle mutilations? Who's like who's doing those? Those are pretty aggressive. Those are pretty dangerous. And some of those are really freaking crazy. And I don't see how they were done by even black ops groups. So someone's doing something. And what's happening with the uh, David Polites um yeah, yeah, yes, yes, one yes. issues? Absolutely. So there's a shadow side to everything. Let's I'll, I'll, right. um Exactly. Okay, so here let me 
take a few steps backwards. In uh, in more of my second book, Stories from the Messengers, an avenue of thought emerged where it felt like a lot of those people in that book were, many of them were shamans. They said it straight up. They were shamans. And if they weren't shamans, they were certainly doing shaman-like work. So they were doing, right. I argued that that collectively we're adrift and we need more shamans as to play a role in in our lives. Now we don't all live in a village in the Amazon jungle where we can walk to the to the hut at the edge of the village and, and then talk to our local shaman. It just is it's not how our society is, is anymore. And right. but we do have these people doing these these shaman like things. And of the people who and this is now I'm going way out on a limb because this is just anecdotal on my part. Something as simple as Reiki healing, which is which is a hands-off mm-hmm. form of energy healing. Right. The number of people I have confronted, and this is me, this is my own completely uh, uh, subjective research, the people who are having owl and UFO experiences who are finding me, I will talk to them. I'll write on a piece of paper, Reiki in the corner. It's not 100%. But when I talk to these people on the phone and we you know, we talk about their experiences and what's going on in their life and what's happened to them. They've had owl and UFO experiences. They will at some point invariably, not all of them, but a, but enough that it's the, the numbers are way skewed. These people are, are also Reiki masters and doing yes. Reiki healing. And if they're not doing Reiki healing, right. they're doing some other form of energy healing. So exactly. I'm going to say for me, that's hopeful. Well, it's hopeful because I'm, I'm, I might be just latching, grasping to straws because I want something to be hopeful. And I recognize that in my own personality, but I would say that it's hopeful because it, it tells me that this UFO contact experience leaves with it a, a form of spiritual energy, let's say, I'll just use Reiki as a, as a, it's not a, it's not a hundred percent, but it's enough that there's a recognizable pattern for me that it, that it puts people in the role of healers in a world that needs to be healed. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I actually, I agree with that. Uh, I don't believe, you know, my, the title of my book is the alien agenda is plural. So I don't, I don't believe that there's one single agenda. Um, I do think that there is evidence or there's at least decent reason to believe that at least one of these groups does not have our best interests in mind. But I think it's also, if I have to make my own conclusion, I think that there is at least one group and maybe multiple groups that are not hostile to us and then actually might want to be beneficial to us. I think that's entirely possible. And in fact, that's what I would, that's what I, I state in the book. I think that's probably the case. And, and furthermore, I think the connection with Reiki, that's a real thing. It's not just Reiki. It's its meditation and it's – let's just say spirituality in general. My own theory on that is uh, – for a long time has just been if – like if I were a highly evolved or highly telepathic alien being of some sort and I'm you know scanning humanity, vast billions of people, there's a good chance that I will be more interested in those few humans whose – Consciousness is keyed up a bit and and I can I can detect, you know, if someone is deeply meditative or somehow 
engaging in much more non-local types of mental activities, some like out-of-body experiences and things. Like if I have the ability to find those people, they are the ones that I would probably be most interested in connecting with. And in fact, they may, if I don't come from another planet, if I come from another dimension of reality, however we are able to understand what that is, because I think a lot of times we don't really grasp that, but it's very possible. It's entirely likely, in fact. So if I if I can only operate interdimensionally, then the thing is those might be the only individuals that I can actually communicate with. And so that's the whole thing. I mean, you know, when people when I first started hearing people say like I got a download or I got this information, I I have to, you know, honestly say that I would inwardly roll my eyes and think, okay, here we go again. But the fact is, it's just happened too many times, and uh, I have to accept it. And so I believe it. I think that this type of thing does happen, and that we – and in fact, I've – you know, I was hinting. I had a kind of mini version of that myself. So I can understand how this happens. So I think that there are – you know, we, we call, talk about the good guys. I think there's probably good guys out there as well as maybe some scary bad guys. Did, did I lose you? No, no, I'm right here. I'm just trying to keep up. Yeah, I just, I, I'm, so we're rent, just a few minutes over an hour here, about an hour and 10 minutes into this. Mm-hmm. And um, we can wind it down here. And I just wanted to, my head's spinning a little bit. I just want to make sure that we don't end it on a down note. So if there is a hybrid agenda here. So here, let me back up a few things and use the analogy mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, like it's very easy to use the analogy that the, that people are being abducted the same way we abduct Grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park, right? You know, we tag them, we drug them, we, yep. we put them on a table, we, you know, um, and then, the, you know, the helicopter flies away. So does the bear, at the end of all this, you know, what's the bear's experience? No, I, I, I can't speak to that. What I can say is that if we are going to use that as an analogy, um, I've talked to some of those grizzly bear researchers, and what they tell me is they love the bears. They care deeply about the bears. Like, they... They want to help the bears. They are there for the most altruistic of reasons. They are taking a low-paying job because they care. And I have to, for my own sanity, remain somehow optimistic in this mm. in this frightening quagmire of of well, conflicting stuff. I understand where you're coming from. I, I'm not in that place. I, I will just honestly say I'm not. I'm not in that place. It uh, doesn't mean that there aren't some good beings on our side. First of all, I, I do believe that there's probably widespread infiltration of our civilization by them, whoever them happen to be. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not bad. Maybe they are. Um, I definitely – I mean to me, the, the, the ultimate thing that I'm worried about, it, it's I'm, – I'm worried about where we are going as a civilization and this transformation into what I've called the fourth stage of humanity, which I mean basically stage one is hundreds of thousands of years as hunters and gatherers. Stage two starts about 10,000 years ago when we invented agriculture and domesticated animals and created our first civilizations, invented writing. You get the Roman Empire. You get the Renaissance. And then stage three is the science and industrial revolutions of a couple of hundred years ago where we fundamentally transformed ourselves again. And now stage four, which I – sometimes called the transhumanist stage or the, the computer stage, whatever. And this is changing us in a fundamental way. And, and my fear is that that transformation is um, 
kind of sucking the humanity out of all of us. And, and it, you know, maybe people of the future will be perfectly fine with it. They probably will find a way. But that's the transformation that worries me. And it's one of total surveillance and complete totalitarian control. Now, within the context of an alien presence here, the only thing that I am afraid of is that the, the only question that I ask is, are they part of active part of that transformation or are they simply sitting back and observing it or are they actively promoting it? Because that's really what it comes down to for me. We're going through the transformation. A century from now, our society is going to look absolutely nothing like what it does now. And in my view, I'm glad that I'm living now and I won't be living in the future. That's my attitude. So uh, the only question I have is what is their attitude toward this transformation? And I suspect like when, when Dave Jacobs would talk about how the um, his abductees would say they're hybrid, they're human-looking hybrid handlers, kept talking about the great changes coming. David interpreted that in a way that I do not interpret that. So David interpreted that as – that the aliens are going to like openly reveal themselves one day and take over the world through their hybrids. And I actually don't think that I believe that. I think, I think, I think that's actually wrong. And what I believe instead is that they are probably well aware of the inexorable changes that we are going through right now. That's we are in the great change right now. So when the abductees are saying, my handler said about the great change, I think this is what they're talking about. They knew it. They knew it all along. So the question is, are they happy with that change or do they not like that? They're, they're, my guess is they're probably perfectly fine with it because it's going to make us more like them. And then the only other question I'm asking is, are they actively infiltrating our society and accelerating them through control over institutions? That's the only question, and I don't know that that's the case, but I will say that I've come across enough stories over enough years from individuals who are absolutely convinced that there are highly powerful telepathic but human-looking beings that have kind of moved into key points of our society, and it's a weird thing to say. makes you think of like David Icke and human-looking mm -hmm. shape-shifting mm -hmm. reptilians, and I don't know that I'm saying that, but – there have been at least a few reasons for me to wonder if this is the case. And I can't say that I know it. So, But uh, I do think we're going through the transformation. And so for me, the only important thing is where do they stand on this transformation? It's very likely an inevitability. And, you know, I can, I can howl into the wind all I want about it. It won't change a thing. You know, whatever my desires are, are irrelevant. As mine are too, in a way. Yeah. And so we're moving into this, this new phase. And I think they're just quite well aware of it. I think that's why we've got their attention right now. I think we're very, very intensely interesting to uh, anyone who's got the ability to observe us. And part of the reason I do this show in the podcasts and the books is to to wrestle with these ideas as well as my own personal experiences. And then I say it very clearly in the books. I don't shy away from the fact that that like I am not objective i'm subjective and i and i well you say you're subjective but you're trying to be objective just like anybody yes but but i'm but i recognize fully that i that i that i want to to bring a, a message of hope right okay yeah 
and and I feel like that that I so I said it like I did not expect to write a hopeful book when the messengers got written, and to me that is a hopeful book in many ways. It, it tells of a of a parallel reality that runs yeah. alongside our own reality. That when you tell whatever many hundreds of stories got told in that, like there's a sort of a mood or a vibe that's palpable. That for me right. tells of a of something hopeful. That is true, and it's uh, you know the it really implies the existence of a uh, of much like much higher level of intelligence and knowing that um, yeah in the stories that re- are recounted in your books, I would say generally speaking these are positive. They're not they're not negative stories. Yeah, hopeful. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now there are there are other ex- not so positive examples. You know, you listen to people talk about the Skinwalker Ranch. You hear guys like Dr. Eric Davis, for example, talk about the pre-sentient intelligence that he believes has been, you know, at that location and and others around the world. And uh, the impression that you get is that not every instance is positive. Oh yeah, you know, it can. So there's different ways of looking at it. But I agree. Like, I want to have hope. I want to believe. To me, the best way to have hope is very simple. It's on a personal level in one's life. The best the best thing that we can do, honestly, I think, is um, love those people who are in our lives and be as true to our humanity as we can be. You love, love your family. You love your friends. And you live your life through as much service as you can to others. And to me, that's that's the most important thing we can do. Every human society has dealt with crises, has dealt with catastrophe, has dealt with injustice, has dealt with, you know, death that should not have happened. I mean, it's, it's never been any other way. It's always been the case because that's the world. But within that, we're still able to find meaning and value and redemption in our lives. I firmly believe that. And on a personal level, I will just say I have a belief in a in my own spiritual existence, and I I guess I will say I have a faith. I can't say that it's knowledge. You know what is faith? Faith to me is like a little bit of hope and a little bit of belief. It's got both of those, mm-hmm. but there's belief. And I have a faith that uh, when this body of mine dies, that some part of me, my consciousness, my soul, whatever it is, will will continue to exist in some way. And that furthermore, that the quality of that existence will be affected in some way or another on how I how I live my life here. So that's what I tell myself. That's my that's my strength that keeps me going. And um you know, I try to detach myself from the outcome of the world in general because uh the world in general I I'm not sure that I am happy with how it's going, but I still have the ability to live my life and to um have my thoughts, you know, as much under my control as I can. So I, that's what I try to do. That's my life. That's my hope. Yeah, and that's you. I mean, I'm I'm glad you said all that, and 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 I've watched you evolve over the years, your research and and the way you confront these issues, and some of the personal uh, conversations we've had over the years. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I I I know where you're coming from in many ways, yeah. and I know your fears and your worries about the big picture and as you said you know we it's very difficult for any one person to try to sculpt the big picture all they can do is you know be their own best selves that's exactly it yeah i mean ultimately that's what it comes down to 
we come into this world alone, we go out alone. Uh, and, and we have to live with ourselves all the time. And so, you know, the thing is, what what is the quality that we want to have of that experience? Do we want to spend all of our time watching old TV shows? I mean, I, I'm as guilty as anyone else uh, uh, going through YouTube and looking at this video or that and distracting ourselves, you know. Uh, and how much of our lives do we want to have as authentic as we can have it? The, the, you know, the moment of our death is going to come to every one of us. Um, my favorite writer of all time is and probably always will be Leo Tolstoy. And uh, I remembered when I read War and Peace and, and then especially his short story, The Death of Ivan Illich, which I recommend to everyone. Everyone should read this book. And uh, Ivan Illich is a – remember when we used to use the word yuppie? Ivan Illich was a classic 19th century Russian yuppie <laughs> for his era. And he, he was a lawyer. He became a judge. He was very successful. And he injures himself. And he becomes sicker and sicker and sicker, and he's bedridden, and he realizes now that he's probably dying, and he goes through this – I don't want to give away too much of it. It's a genius piece of literature. It's only 60 pages or whatever. And at the end, actually, Tolstoy basically has Ivan Illich in a conversation with his soul. That's essentially it. But the real thing that Ivan Illich asks himself as he realizes that he's going to die much younger than he thought is, oh, my God. What if I have lived my whole life wrong? And the way that Tolstoy shows you, it's like, yep, you sure did, man. And now it's too late because now you're dying. And, and the thing is, every one of us, every single one of us is going to come to that moment where we have to honestly assess our lives with, with the brilliant and pitiless bright light of truth. We, we avoid it for as long as we can. But eventually, we, it comes to us. And what I realized is that I do not want – I do not want to be on my deathbed and ask that question. What if I have lived my life wrong? So the, the thing is, for me, the most important thing are the relationships and, and the support of – and supporting those people that I love at the most personal level. And doing what I can for the broader community, yes, that's important. But, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, we all have to meet our maker, whatever that means. And when that comes, I don't want to be ashamed. So that's where I'm coming from. That's my whole perspective. And we should, this is a wonderful place to end it. And thank you. This has been a remarkable interview it's been wonderful to catch up and and we went a little bit astray at the end here but i felt like it needed <laughs> it needed i wanted to I wanted to, i didn't want to end it on a, end on a high note yeah i wanted to end on a high note not, not george costanza on seinfeld yeah. remember that yeah go out on a high note yes i agree i totally agree good and i just need to say thank you so much this has been a joy oh same for me mike thank you very much for having me here you're most welcome This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. This interview started out as one thing, and it morphed into something else altogether during our recording. 
At one point during one of the breaks, I asked if there was anything he wanted to talk about, and he said he wanted to address humanity's present stage and how it is unfolding right now. Um, Now, this was covered in the book, in the final chapter and in the conclusion, but it was addressed only briefly, and I feel like we covered it much more thoroughly here in this audio conversation. Yet this subject and this aspect of our present human history can play out with such bleakness, and I did not want to end the show in such a disheartening way. And I, and I said as much more than once, and you heard me say it near the end of the show. Now, at one point near the end of our conversation, I talked about how bear biologists in Yellowstone love the bears that they are researching. And this is true. And I used it as a metaphor for the human interaction with the aliens. And you can hear it in Rich's voice. You can hear him. And he was having none of it. And, and I remember during the recording that my, that my heart kind of sunk. And I listened carefully during the editing, and and I'm glad I said what I did. Um, now, this overly love and light outlook reflects a lot of the people I am talking with, as well as the mood or the vibe that has emerged within my research. So I felt that I was sharing my conclusions and my feelings accurately. And I guess that Rich and I are probably talking to different people in our roles of researchers. We're studying the same subject, we're looking at it from different angles, and I feel that that reflects our differing outlook. Now I'm about to say something, and I've said it in my research and also in my books, but I want to try to say it a bit more clearly here. I know what I want the overall conclusion to be. I want the UFO phenomenon to be something benevolent and helpful. But me wanting that does not make it so. But for me, for someone who has invested a ton of energy in this subject for over a decade, I recognize that I am trying to be objective, yet I realize fully that I am guilty of tipping the scales to reflect my own hopeful mindset. And now, back to Rich in his work. You can contact him through his main website, and that is titled richarddolanmembers.com. Now, his site has a ton of content. This includes video, audio, and text, including a wealth of interviews. You can find his books on Amazon simply by typing in his name. And I listed many of those books during the intro to this interview, and these are mostly very big books. His most recent book, Alien Agendas is much shorter, coming in at around 170 pages. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.